Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to Recovery Machine, episode 12. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm here with co-host Nathan. Hello, Nathan. Hey, Corey, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm a little bit tired, but that is absolutely fine. I'm excited about this episode. Tell us what's going on, Nathan. <laughs> well, we've got, uh, we've got a special guest in today. He's a multi-award winning writer and broadcaster, a host and executive producer of the wildly popular podcast Crackdown, and a longtime champion of harm reduction and safe supply in BC. Voice of the voiceless, frontline advocate, documentarian, humanitarian, musician, activist. He is a leader in the campaign to save lives by promoting pragmatic, sensible drug regulation. It is our great honor and our pleasure to welcome Garth Mullins to the show. Oh, wow. Hello. The honor is mine. Uh, as a maker of radio, I love the FM baritone that you give reading that introduction. That was just like chef's kiss. Beautiful. Thank you for having me. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So I guess uh, what we can start with is just a little bit of uh, an introduction. And if you could give our listeners kind of a, a background on what keeps you busy, uh, where you're at, and uh, what kind of work you do, that would be fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, me, I'm just, I'm like an old school dope fiend, you know, like uh, I'm middle-aged now when I was a kid uh, or teenager, started doing heroin when there was still heroin around here. And, um, uh, you know, I used that for a decade, decade and a half. And then I got on methadone and I used, continued to use heroin and other opioids and sort of gradually got to mostly doing methadone. And, and that's kind of where I am now. But along the way, um, kind of survived a bunch of big public health crises around here. Uh, uh, the big uh, explosion of HIV, we had a very big um, there was an overdose crisis of really strong heroin in the 90s. And now the overdose crisis of uh, fentanyl and, and all that, which is even bigger and has been going on here for six years. And in fact, it's so big that they declared it a public health emergency. You know, like the official coroners and the, the public health people get up and say, OK, this is an emergency. It's really bad. So, uh, yeah, I mean, surviving. And then also, I guess a big part of my life has been activism. Uh I've been an organizer with the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users for a bunch of years, fighting for decriminalization, the end of the drug war, fighting against the over-policing of our communities. And um, another big part of my life is death, uh, that I've overdosed. Uh, lots and lots of people I know have overdosed. Probably half the people I came up with are gone now. So uh, my world is really crowded with ghosts. You know, it's just um, all the time. And I feel like... Uh, you know, I tried to put all this crap behind me. I tried to be like, okay, heroin and cops and grinding and scoring and being dope sick, all that. I just don't ever want to think about that anymore. I just try to put my head down, take my methadone, go to work. But uh, my friends, my community, this crisis calls me back, you know, like calls me into action. And like, I have to be part of the, you know, one of the foot soldiers fighting back against the drug war. And um, so that's what I do. You know, I guess I had survivor's guilt and I couldn't. I couldn't turn away from something that was killing everybody and nearly killed me. And so I guess I spend a lot of my days fighting to end that. Yeah. And rightfully so. One of the things that me and Corey were talking about before this episode is 
what it might be for you as far as uh, you know you're taking this on it it looks very grim and it has for a long time you're right in the middle of it you're down there in Vancouver um, how do you kind of weather that storm uh, psychologically what do you do to keep yourself you know in the pocket and not taking on too much well I guess that's part of it you know like I don't work uh, frontline like a lot of people so I'm a I'm a frontline organizer that means like um, we, we have meetings and actions and campaigns involving people who are using every day, people who are using in the meetings. Like we're, we're right organizing right amongst the people who are most vulnerable to this, but I don't work at a safe injection site. You know, like I don't work like right next to somebody who's using all the time every day. You know, like I, I know my own limits. And, um, you know, I think that's just, that would be kind of too, too intense, too much for me. Um, but yeah, there's lots of death and I deal with that uh, probably the same way a lot of, a lot of other people do that sometimes it gets on top of me and I just feel uh, all kinds of broken. Sometimes I feel so angry. I can't swallow properly. Uh, sometimes I feel so numb. I just um, like just walking like a zombie through the world. And I think it just vacillates between all of that. But the only thing I know that makes it feel doesn't make it feel better, but it sort of dulls dulls the stab a little bit is to be with other people who are feeling the same thing. So at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, that's the drug user union here in Vancouver, we hold funerals for our members all the time. And we try to remember them together and to hold them close together. We hold a moment of silence at the end of every meeting where we all say the names of people that we're missing and thinking about. And the best person doing that is um, Brian. He's a member, he's an activist, and he says, if you're a Vandu member, you're a member forever. So he doesn't just mean for life. He means, like, once you're with us, we'll never forget you, even after you die. And sometimes only people will remember somebody. So being together with your comrades in the struggle is, is probably the, one of the ways I, I get by. Yeah, completely understandable. Yeah. It would be the, the thing that ties you to the battle and the thing that props you up at the same time. Um, Corey, you were just mentioning that uh, Garth had tweeted something about uh, a raise. The uh, health minister has voted to uh, give some of our leaders a raise because they believe that they're doing such an excellent job with the uh, toxic drug crisis. Um, what Could you talk a, a little bit about that, Corey? I, I forget what the exact... Well, Garth, I, I mean, I learned it from, from you today on Twitter about a potential 10% raise being included in going towards the minister of mental health and addictions. And at the end of this year, it's for all it's for the whole cabinet. It's so but, they're giving themselves yeah. all a raise. Yeah. But, but I mean that, that one in particular must be a, a, a really bitter pill to swallow. I mean, 10% would suggest that there was an exemplary job being done, not just a satisfactory job, but that there was, that there were lives being saved, that it was, that it was a model. Um, and that, that doesn't even come close to adequately representing the fact that over 2,200 lives have been lost in this province. Yeah. Just in 2021, it, that's right. Yeah. 2,224 lives, uh, which is a record year after a previous record year, um, <clears throat> in a second overdose crisis in my life, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's amazing. So we were calling for the resignation of those ministers, the, the addiction minister and the health minister, you know, so we're just saying, 
um, those coroner statistics are like a report card for those ministers. And they got an F. They just did so bad. Um, and yet they're kind of patting themselves on the back. They're saying, oh, we're making historic investments, but isn't this sad? And also let's give ourselves a pay raise. Yeah, it is kind of frustrating. Yeah, it, it, I, I've thought about it quite a bit over, I don't know, the last couple of years, I guess, as as I've watched the media's response to what's going on all over the world with the infectious disease situation we're in, and I've been comparing it to, you know, just resource wise to seeing, to see how much money is being dumped in and, and what the response is like uh, comparing the two, the two emergency situations. And it's outrageously lopsided. And I cannot for the life of me, I mean, are these people the, the best I think we came up with, Corey, was that it's just it's a difficult political kind of field to navigate. But that still doesn't really tell the whole story, because at some point you would think that somebody would remember that they're a human being and that there's actual human beings out there who are dying at the rate of uh, seven per day. I think it is now. And. I mean, the last uh, budget announcement was an absolute uh, smack in the face for anybody who's trying to do this type of work. And it was already insulting what, what they were doing. So can you please <laughs> shed some insight on what you're seeing down there? Why? Why won't they do anything meaningful about this? I don't know. The way I read history is governments never do anything for, for people unless they're powerful people. You know, like governments never... Uh, give people rights or give people the things they need unless we twist their arm and force them to do it. So if you look at the whole history of everything from like safety at work or, or the weekend or votes for women or, or civil rights, any, any struggle that's been won or partially won, it's always because people break the law and organize and, and twist arms and stuff like that. So I think the government just isn't in the business of doing that. And so if they're trying to, if they're faced with uh, mass death, and we're not able to compel them to do something, they won't do it because they're uh, fundamentally cowardly, I think, just politically cowardly people. But also, they're just in the business of, um, you know, helping out the employer class of British Columbia or wherever they're they're doing business. That's, that's what their clients are. That's what they're providing a service for. They're helping, um, you know, a small group of corporate interests extract wealth from everywhere else, including the environment and uh, accumulate it up amongst them. So yeah, they, they just, we just don't rate when, when that's your main business line. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I suppose if you sit here and just think, well, once the numbers reach 10,000 or a hundred thousand or at some point, it, or maybe it starts affecting, um, you know, members of, of, policymakers, families. Uh, but it, at this point, I would have to think that there's not very many people in BC who haven't been you know, directly affected in that they've at least lost somebody they know, probably one or two friends, um, you know, just because the numbers are so high. But yeah, I mean, what you're saying does make a lot of sense, and especially historically. And there's no indication that anything is going to change, even after all this stuff that we've seen with the escalation year after year after year. So, I mean, 
if I was betting on whether or not this situation was going to fix itself or not, or, or the government was going to jump in, it doesn't look like it's going to happen to me. Yeah, I agree with you. There's no magic number. There's no amount of bodies that would uh, trigger the government to change its ways. I don't think, um, <clears throat> you know, there's no, um, there's no particular person either. I, I don't think, I mean, I think there was actually a few years ago, a cabinet minister who had a son-in-law or I don't know, something like that. Someone in their family did die from overdose and that didn't seem to uh, move the government at all. I, I can't remember who that was like agriculture or something like that. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any line across which some people said, Oh my God, it, it can't go past 2000. And then I remember before <laughs> when people said it can't go past 1000 without them doing something. And I remember before that when it was 400 a year in, uh, in the 90s, and that was considered a crisis. That was considered a big crisis, and they started to allow for some small reforms like um, uh, needles, for example, syringes, and eventually a safe injection site. But those things, too, they didn't give us. We fought for them. We broke laws, did civil disobedience, did illegal needle distribution, did illegal underground safe injection sites, all that stuff to kind of embarrass and compel and conjole them to allow that stuff um, legally. Right, and that's uh, that's along the lines of what uh, what your organization just did uh, a little while ago, right? With the uh, you were providing a safe supply kind of demonstration. Uh, can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a um, sort of a, a coalition of activists here in Vancouver called the Drug User Liberation Front, and it's got people from lots of different organizations like Vandu, like the BC Association of People on Opioid Maintenance, which I'm also a part of. And so those three organizations got together two weeks ago and did a um, distribution of meth, heroin, and coke that had been um, tested through FTIR uh, spectrometry. You know, so scan them to make sure there's no fentanyl or no uh, benzos or anything like that in there that people are getting just what they think. And um, they were distributed. The drugs were distributed to the members of our organization. And they were pretty small. It was a couple points each person. Um, so really not enough to rock anybody's world, at least not anybody who was there. If you're, if you haven't ever done it before, that will definitely <laughs> rock your ass. But um, uh, I think the idea was to show here's a possible future. And, and we're trying to address the problem. The problem isn't whether people are using drugs or whether they're wired or have an addiction or any of that shit. The problem is that people are dying uh, from toxic drugs. And uh, half of the people that die are not um, what you would call uh, people like me, like uh, with uh, opioid use disorder, you know, who have uh, every day wired to it kind of thing. Um, half of those people are just like weekend warriors and all that. So it's, it's like anything that's aimed at like more treatment or more recovery beds, that's all very nice, but it's not going to hit the less deaths. And that's the real problem. At least that's the problem that we want, we're interested in solving um, most quickly. And I, you were mentioning a minute ago about the, uh, the pandemic, right? Like the public health response to COVID-19. And in British Columbia, that included um, massive uh, vaccination rollouts to 5 million people, you know, some, sometimes in some cases, three doses inside of one year in 2021. Um, most of the province, like a huge, like uh, towards 90% um, got vaccines through massive uh, clinics, right? So if you can do that, you can also do the same thing for safe supply because pharmaceutical opioids are basically the vaccine for overdose deaths. 
And just like the vaccine, um, you know, for COVID, it will uh, likely prevent you from dying or serious hospitalization if you catch COVID. It's not going to solve every problem. It's not going to end the transmission of COVID, blah, blah, blah. It's not the, it's not the silver bullet, magic unicorn fairy, whatever. Uh, but safe supply will likewise um, really end the overdose death crisis overnight. And if, if people's concern is about um, drug use or addiction or something like that, that's, that's another problem. But if you want to end the deaths, um, that's what you do. So, Garth, did, did you get any response from, from the province of BC about the safe supply experiment that you guys conducted? Um, you know, I don't know what they, I don't know what they think about it. Um, they uh, are prescribing, uh, you know, again, based on our activism from a few years ago, uh, dilaudid to a small amount of people, and they call that safe supply. It's, it's, it's not. Um, safe supply is like you, you're able to obtain the pharmaceutical version of the thing you're wired to. So instead of doing say heroin that you buy off the street, you do diacetamorphine that's pharmaceutical grade. And no one's trying to get you to quit or change or do anything else. The only, the only goal is don't die. So, you know, the province is, is busy doing something else and they, they take our words and uh, apply it to their program. And so it causes confusion, but um, you know, that I know of, they haven't responded. Um, we asked minister, G uh, minister um, Sheila Malcolmson, the minister of mental health and addictions for an interview um, to coincide with when those statistics came out, when those 2,224 deaths were announced a couple of weeks ago. And she declined. I mean, she went back and forth with one of my producers for a couple of weeks or, or her people did. And then, oh, she's busy. And we're like, oh, we can wait while well, she's busy for months. So <laughs> she was basically saying, no, she doesn't, she doesn't want to come on. And I mean, uh, we have interviewed ministers from the government before on our program on crackdown and my questions are direct and I don't just let people uh, talk a lot of shit, but I'm also polite and respectful and I don't name call or yell at, or cut people off. You know, we, we <laughs> do it nice. Um, so I don't think they, they really have any excuse for not coming on our, on our show. Um, but uh, I think they're frightened because they really don't have answers. All they have is deaths. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it it just, you would, it's not like it's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. I mean, like you said, if, you, if you're going to try to tackle this problem that's, that exists because of uh, enforcement, basically, I mean, uh, the more you enforce uh, a drug supply to try and keep it out, uh, inevitably the, the potency increases due to, you know, the ease of smuggling. And this is where we've gotten to now where we've got carfentanil in these drugs that are, you know, a tiny bit could take down an elephant type of thing. And that's, that probably never would have been had we addressed this properly 20, 30 years ago. But um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that right, like uh, about a kilometer from here is where the first hard drug arrest happened in Canada for a guy who was, uh, I guess, selling or manufacturing opium. It was in the summer of 1908, just after the Opium Act was passed. And, um, you know, that's over 113, 14, whatever years ago. Um, and uh, like, it's just been getting stronger ever since. Like smoking opium sounds very kind of quaint now compared to, <laughs> you know, went from opium to morphine to heroin to shooting heroin to eventually to China White and then eventually to fentanyl, carfentanyl, benzodope. You know, it's just like it's an arms race uh, caused by enforcement. But that was like 1908 in the summer. That was your very first 
Vancouver police finding an opium den and, and kicking in the door and all that, you know, so they've been definitely, I agree with you, that enforcement has been the root of this ever since. And, and it was then rooted in, in racist, anti, anti-Asian, anti-Chinese policy. It, to, it, from your perspective, Garth, is there still an element of, of, of racism involved in, in the policy? Sure. I mean, uh, back then, right, there was, uh, there was a, like, uh, anti-immigrant politics were very, very mainstream back then, as they have become again now. But, um, you know, they were specifically targeting Japanese and Chinese immigrants and residents of Vancouver. Vancouver was a really small town then back in 1908. And there was a big group called the Asiatic Exclusion League. They had a march in 1907. Um, it turned into a riot. A bunch of like racist white dudes went and smashed up all the businesses in Chinatown and marched off to do the same in Japantown. And, uh, you know, after um, a few months after that, the, the federal government was kind of getting embarrassed on the international scene. This had happened. So they sent a guy out to compensate people for broken windows and stuff. So he was, you know, he set, he set up his, his little hearings and the businesses came in and said, look, I need a few bucks to replace my window, this and that. And then he realized two of the businesses were uh, opium manufacturers. And he's outraged that Canadian taxpayers would be having to pay for damages to um, opium manufacturers. He wrote back to Ottawa, very upset, you know, like we have to do something about this. And within months, they had a law against opium manufacturing. And the thing that really incensed this guy was um, the involvement of what he wrote right in the report, white women and girls. You know, so he saw he saw opium as this um, vector of of nefarious foreign influence on, on, um, on, you know, the, the innocent white people of, of British Columbia. And, and so he, he started taking action and this was such a great ticket um, bashing uh, immigrants that he rode this all the way to being Canada's longest serving prime minister, Um, William Lyon Mackenzie King, the, uh, the longest serving prime minister got his start here in Vancouver by pouring gasoline on racist fires uh, and that served him very well. And it's really, it's really part of Canadian tradition, but that stuck with the drug war. You're absolutely right. That, um, if you look at who's getting, uh, stopped and searched by the cops, who's getting charged, jailed, who's getting harassed, beat up, killed by the cops, uh, what neighborhoods are subject to most policing, all that, all those statistics, who, who is the, is it gets the sharpest end of the drug war. It's always black and indigenous people of color in Canada. And, and the police are constantly using, Oh, we saw a drug dealing or we think it's drug dealing as a pretext for going and hassling and stopping and searching people, whether they're involved with drugs or not. Um, You know, so it's, it's still, it's still like a very big plank of white supremacy. So if we want to dismantle white supremacy, we're going to have to end the drug war as part of it. And um, if we want to end the drug war, we better as fuck be trying to smash white supremacy because these things are so tied together. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's interesting that uh, they keep, they keep going with these uh, iterations of our, our policies on a federal level. Uh, and the last one, uh, the language had changed somewhat. So it was less anti-drug and more, uh, it, at least recognizing that uh, drugs can be used and are used by the vast majority of the population in a responsible way. Um, but in that, in that same statement, they go on to talk about how the money that they're going to use towards enforcement will be all targeting upper, you know, they want the traffickers, they want the big guys. 
Uh, and yet that doesn't pan out. We see that still 75% of the people who are incarcerated are the low level dealers. Uh, and it's always stayed around 10% uh, effective as far as what we do for enforcement to keep drugs out of the country. They got about a 10% intercept rate. And it doesn't seem to matter how much money they pour into it. So these are the things that I, I just, I wonder when they see that and, and continue to burn that money up in a big pile, knowing that it's not going to do what they want it to do. How could there be, you know, I, I just don't know at, at what point you can continue to do that and, and claim to be a, a sane person, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think to do something about it, you have to actually give a fuck if people die. And what we see out here is, um, well, I mean, ever since the beginning, right? You look around residential schools and all those um, unmarked graves that are coming up. Um, that shows that governments haven't been very concerned about people dying. Um, certainly, they've targeted traditional groups for their lack of concern, but that's expanded, right? And then they haven't ever really cared about drug users dying. But now you can see um, last year in British Columbia, over 500 people died just in the heat dome emergency. Government didn't seem to care. They're not they're not hurrying themselves up to distribute emergency air conditioners or some shit like that right now. Um, and uh, people died in the pandemic uh, when they kind of kept opening up too early and making these kind of bad compromises between public health and the economy. So I just think that um, when you're, when you're the government uh, of British Columbia or, or lots of other places, you're just like, um, we have accepted that lots of people are going to die because of our policy reasons. And that's just part of the equation. That's just a trade-off. So like until and unless that changes, um, we're just going to see more of it. But what's, what I find interesting is more and more people are kind of waking up to this. Oh, it's not just drug users. They don't care if anybody dies or hardly anybody dies, you know, uh, right. it's like a expanding pool of necropolitics, you know, interesting terminology there. Yeah. I like it. Um, and maybe uh, not that's my, not my invention. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe that's what I have to stop doing on a personal level is just stop pretending that there is uh, some level of humanity there and just assume a, from a default point of view that uh, the government is not going to, they're not going to go out of their way to, to stop people from dying, especially if it costs more or is going to inconvenience them or make them look uh, you know, put them in a, a bad light politically. It's hard, right? Because um, we have to accept that if we're not going to be continually um, let down and have our trust broken and feel betrayed by them. But at the same time, we still have to go, you know, lobby and fight and interact with them to try and win reforms, right? Because um, while I want to end the drug war, I, I want the whole thing. There's a million things on the way to that that we have to fix, like little incremental things about the methadone system or, or whatever else, right? Like we, we still have all these smaller things to win. So it's like, we're still stuck sitting across the table from the people who don't actually care if we die while we're sitting there. Uh, it's, it's an, it's an amazing, <laughs> terrible place to be, but I, I think that's the job. Like you're right. We have to, we have to accept these people don't care if, if we die, but also these people are holding a lot of the cards. So we kind of have to still uh, try and cajole them into doing something. Yes. And, and there's a, there's still a huge layer of ignorance there too, which, which adds another dimension of frustration to it because the words that come out of some of these politicians mouths, 
I can tell that they're, they haven't spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about the situation. And even if they did, I still don't believe that they would really understand some of the things that you're saying or some of the things that you're trying to do. It, it's, it's like a foreign language to them. So, I mean, you really got your work cut out for you there, Garth. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, I think we all do, but it's just like, uh, you, you think in the time that, that this government's been in power is, is maybe 10,000 people or eight, eight to 10,000 people have died and they can't be arsed to learn about this file, especially the people who are in charge of it, like the Minister of Public Safety, the Minister of Health, the Minister of Addictions and the Premier. Because I agree with you, when they open their mouths, they sound pretty ignorant uh, sometimes. And I just think, well, it's, it's, it's laziness. They don't care. And it's also like they've decided that they disagree. So they'll say things that are wrong, but it's because they believe them. And they're like, actually, no, we, we don't want your solutions, you know? Right. Yeah. Like the, uh, uh, when you called for the resignation of the uh, Minister of Addictions and Mental Health, uh, she's, her reaction was to say, well, if I quit my job, how is that going to save anyone's life? <laughs> like, talk yeah, about... I mean- yeah, <laughs> just not getting it, you know, mm-hmm. on, on such a fundamental level. But uh, yeah, anyway, I, we wanted to pick your brain about that. I was really uh, trying to get uh, a, a different perspective on it, but I, I think you're 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 bang on with that with that outlook. And I mean, she, she does have a point. She does have a point. Like, um, if she if she quits her job, what will that do? My my rejoinder, if she had ever had this conversation with me, would be. Um, if we don't fire people for causing our maths deaths, if there are never consequences, what's ever going to change? Like if we can't enforce something, like if the only language that you fucking ghouls up there speak is power and uh, political influence and stuff, then if we can't snatch some of that away from you or get you transferred to the cabinet or whatever, then how are you ever going to learn who what's ever going to change? You know? So like, and I know that we don't have anywhere near the power. I mean, when we call for someone's resignation, I know it's just like, so a bunch of dope fiends on Hastings street <laughs> get together and call for someone's resignation. Who cares? Right. I mean, I do understand this, but it, so it is in some senses rhetorical, but we are putting the demand out there. Like shouldn't people get fired? I, I always say there was this minister of um, international, cooperation of the Harper federal government called Bev Oda. And she was at some conference once where, you know, if you're traveling for, for, for on ministerial business, you, you know, the taxpayer pays for your hotel room and your meals and stuff. And she had a glass of orange juice that cost $16. And so she put it on her, on her tab. And when everybody found out about this, there was a scandal and she resigned. And so if a minister resigns over a $16 glass of fucking orange juice, surely 2,224 deaths has got to merit something, you know, but guess not. Yeah, it, it's again hard to wrap the mind around, but uh, I mean, you did get her, you did get the minister's attention, and at least you're, you know, at least you've got a dialogue of some sort going there. So, I mean, she's aware of of your group, she's aware of what you guys are fighting for. So that's that's not nothing. Yeah, to say nothing is to imply that it's that it's okay and that it's tolerable. So kudos mm. to kudos to you and and uh, and crackdown for for challenging her so publicly. Well, thank you, thanks. Yeah, Nathan, should we switch gears here a little bit? Yeah, let's switch gears. Sure. And again, this conversation will probably weave in and out because what we are talking about is is such a it's it's part and parcel with with the with the book that we want to discuss. Mm. So 
um, Garth, you and I connected on, on Twitter briefly over a tweet um, regarding the weight of air, the novel, the memoir uh, by David Poses, which came out last year. Unfortunately, David died on February 16th of this year. And, uh, and that's how we sort of, how we clicked online over, uh, over the weight of air and Radiohead. And Mm -hmm. uh, so we wanted to to discuss the book because there's so much of it that, that shows the human side that shows the humanity of, of a drug user and the humanity of, of the faces of the drug war. And, and which is very much to me, what you have done with, with the crackdown podcast is you've given a voice and a face to, to the people whose stories are, 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 are written. And um, without that, those people would have no, no voices. So the, the weight of air, uh, we don't want to, sort of riddle this with spoilers, but we have to provide a little bit of context to the listener. And if anyone has read it, this will be of, of uh, hopefully some, some value to you. If you haven't read it, this is a, an, an endorsement, certainly from the three of us to go out and read it. And uh, whether you are a, a drug user, whether you know opiates or not, uh, whether you have, a, have lost someone in your life or not. Um, so without too many spoilers, I just wanted to kind of just mention what, where the book goes. So for those of you who don't know, The Weight of Air takes us through David's experience with heroin, starting at age 16 to ending up in rehab at age 18, spending his 19th birthday there, and onward to an addiction uh, that he hid from his peers for years through relationships, through employment, hiding his addiction while others in his life praised him for his his perceived sobriety. Uh, He candidly shows us the lengths that one must go to to self-medicate in a world of prohibition. David teaches the reader along the way about his heroin use being about self-medicating for his depression and does so in a way that taps on the shoulder of virtually anyone who's ever self-medicated for absolutely any mental health issue, grief, anything. David highlights that the world of addiction medicine um, chooses paternalism and talking down instead of listening and learning, a world where the opportunity for connection is lost due to a failure or an unwillingness to find out what an individual might need in that moment. David takes us on a relatable journey through his relationships where love and connection become almost impossible and asks the reader to determine if it was his depression or his addiction that were at the helm. David takes us through an excruciatingly honest view of relapse and the mixed emotions that come with it. He shows us the effect of true love and parenthood as a mooring line when he meets his wife, Andrea, and eventually becomes a father. He teaches uh, the reader about Suboxone as an alternative to white knuckle abstinence or methadone, and how once his opioid receptors were managed, the craving ceased and primary healing, emotional healing could begin and freedom from all that bound him could, could start to develop. So, and that's just to say the least about this book um, again, without, uh, without any major, major plot spoilers, but it is a, it, it ends up being ultimately a, a, a happy ending, so to speak in the story, because our, our, our friend finds some, finds some peace in his story. And I don't know about you guys. I'm not sure I've ever read a book where, where the protagonist or where the author feels like such a friend as David poses does in this book. Um, but I felt an immediate connection to him and 
felt like I knew him better than I've ever known the author of a, of a memoir or of a story. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a great job of uh, giving us an outline there, Corey. That's really awesome. Um, I, I agree with you, certainly that it was, uh, I, I felt a connection with him because people who, people who have that response to opiates, like everybody that's, uh, everyone that's currently present here now, it's, it's difficult to describe the impact that it has on your life as far as, you know, taking that, like I call it the beehive or whatever, where it's just constant background kind of angst or whatever that never seems to go away unless a drug is on board. And that, I mean, he talked about that frequently about the first time he did heroin, it was the first time he felt normal. I, I identified with that a lot. Um, Garth, I don't know if you've ever been to a treatment facility. I was mandated to attend one or, or lose my job. And it was a atrocious experience. Experience. I basically ended up having to just lie to, to, to complete the program so I could go back to work. Um, but I, mm. I, his, his, his description of uh, his experience there, I, it, it, it was like I was there, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely that uh, sense of the first time you do heroin, you feel normal. I mean, God, I know so many people who've said that exact sentence, you know, like I, I felt that for sure. I'm like, oh, this is what everybody else is feeling who isn't having this constant war inside or this like howling alienation or self-hate. And our uh, crackdowns editorial board, if you go around the circle of all of those people, they would all say the same thing. So that was, I mean, that was really um, deeply true. I, I, I recognized in that book some of the things that have been in my life, like hiding, hiding a heroin habit from people you love um, and, and your use of dope coming between you and them uh, really really struck me too. Like I've just spent years and like really uh, hurt. I think the feelings of people that I was close to because of that. Uh, And, and, you know, I was, I was, I guess I was a really depressed kid. Uh, I was a suicidal kid and heroin helped that. And I look back and I realized heroin might be the reason why I'm still alive, you know, And, and heroin helped me get through really hard times and feel normal. And, um, and yet we're supposed to feel like pariahs for it and are punished for it and are kind of hounded and jailed and all the rest. Uh, and, and maybe there would be no book for David to write if heroin was legal. You know, maybe he would have just, just used it like people at, at some of the places. Like I think where he worked at a creative agency or something like that. And they, they went out for drinks after work or whatever. You know, it would have just been like that. It would have been so banal as to not be worth uh, writing about. But I, I just, I really feel for, for David's family. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine the, the hole that, that he leaves last month and, and forever. And I felt, I think that the thing, you know, a lot of the stuff he talked about, about drugs was really, um, really resonated with me, but also, you know, uh, this is a great record. This is a uh, okay computer. He describes, yeah. he describes finding this uh, record and listening to it um, in the book a lot. And uh, I, I loved this record when it came out radiohead, you know, like uh, 
I think in the mid nineties or mid to late nineties. And um, I still love it. And, and, and so did he, and, and he listened to it, it um, obsessively. And I think I did too. Um, I've certainly worked or been around uh, overdose prevention sites where Radiohead gets played a lot. I don't know if it somehow fits really good into the opioid receptors or something. Mm-hmm. Like that, but <laughs> it's, uh, I, de- I definitely, that rings true too, but yeah, I mean, it's uh it's gutsy to, to share this part of your life with people. You know, I never used to share this about myself until a couple of years ago. And it was terrible to lug around this giant shameful secret with you all the time that kept you from being as close to people as you might be, because you have this secret, you have this big part of you that you're not telling them like a big part of me is a dope fiend, you know, like, and that's okay. And I've learned to make friends with that person and it's not so bad. And now I can tell people, but I didn't know how, and so when you said earlier that, um, that I, you know, that I've played a voice for the voiceless in, in the podcast, I kind of feel like, I hope that's true, but I've also been given a voice by the same people who are on the show, like Laura Shaver, who is on the editorial board, taught me how to talk about this stuff without feeling ashamed. And I bet you this book, I'll bet you the weight of air does that for people. Uh, I bet you that people reading it are like, this guy is just coming out and he's saying it like it is, and he's not hanging his head low. And, and maybe I can do that too. And there's a lot of liberation in that, you know? So I, I hope that that book uh, does that for people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, first of all, I, I couldn't agree more about okay. Computer. That was uh, one of the albums of my youth. That was uh, such a, such a comforting friend to me. Um, uh, Kid a as well, but okay. Computer for sure. Uh, Do you think Garth for you was, having developing that voice and um, becoming a spokesperson for your, for your community, did, did ridding yourself of that shame, did you notice any difference in, in what your need was for, for, for heroin or for opiates? Did, did, did it, did you feel start to feel like you needed that less or has that had any impact with all of the other stressors that have come with being that voice, being that face for the community and being as connected as you are to the, the loss of life as you've been. Yeah. I don't really, I don't really know. Um, I know that what, what made a big change for me is um, uh, like my partner suggested I go to this, uh, this PTSD treatment doc. And I went there, like, I, I just was like, okay, sure. Cause I've been to like shitty counseling and rehab shit and 12 step this and that. And so I was just like, anytime someone says, go talk to somebody and to get help, I'm just like, no, <laughs> please no. Uh, but I went there and she said, oh, you have PTSD. And after talking to me for a while, you know, and, and, um, and uh, gave me treatment for it. And um, that really changed things for me a lot. And uh, that it wasn't covered under healthcare. Like in Canada, we celebrate, we have, oh, healthcare, but mental health isn't, isn't part of that. Um, so I, luckily I had a, I had a job, a union job with uh, extended benefits uh, that covered it. Right. But like, um, I know I see like on Twitter, David's struggle with mental health as well. And I just think, wow, we're all so close to just, um, you know, slipping away, like not getting the help we need because uh, it's not available unless you have money or extended benefits or, 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 or like the help that David got was some of it was actually bad for you, you know, makes yeah. you feel more ashamed and worse and stuff like that. So for, in terms of lifting the shame, I think just, just the lifting some of that old PTSD off of me was, was, was really helpful. 
uh, in that, but I don't know, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't think I'll ever be like an opioid free person. I think I'll be taking methadone or something forever, but, uh, that's okay. In fact, I don't know how anybody is an opioid free person because it's the fucking apocalypse. It's the end of the world. Like, look around. The fucking guy in Russia's got his finger on the button. How is anybody is sober right now? I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But I mean, and and like, I I did really see in David's book how um, Suboxone and OAT uh, played a role uh, for him and. Um, you know, I got to just, just to be honest, I didn't know whether I was going to say this or not, but when I read this book and, um, and people tell me stories like this, I love the story, but the story is like a comeback kid. It was like, I was in a bad place, but I, but I'm back. I'm, I'm saved. I'm fixed. And I'll never say this about myself because for one, I just don't know if it's true. I don't think the world goes in this arc, like following along the 12 steps, you know, you, you accept a higher power. You make a list of your failures. You eventually accept them. You apologize to people. And then you're like, then you're an evangelist, evangel evangelist for a 12 step. You go and help the addict who's still suffering. I know we get taught these comeback kids story arcs, right? Um, and I'm not saying that that was what was David was doing, but I just felt like that, the ending of his book where he finally finds peace. I just, I was like, oh my God, please. I hope it's true. Cause every time I, every time I meet people who tell me that story, I want to believe it. We all need to believe that there's a, there's this place. And I used to just, when I was a lot younger, I used to just be like, I'll just get to this place. I'll just get clean of everything and I'll fix my life and everything will be good. And I was just bullshitting mm -hmm. myself. You know, when I realized I just had to make small sustainable changes and not think that I was this different, incredible saved person. And again, I'm not saying that David was doing that, but when, when he reaches, you know, toward, towards the end of the book, uh, uh, you know, when he's happy with his family and he's, and he's reaching that better place, I'm just like, please let this be yeah. where he lives please let this be the end and then in february when we all heard that he died i was just like fuck you know and i just i, I like i don't want to take people's hope away because you know people always hashtag we can recover or we do recover or whatever like that and, and i'm i it, it probably does happen it does happen but i just i'll never say this of myself like i just i feel that life is full of un unknowable unknowable fucking horrors and i don't know yeah. what horrors um, David experienced in the last few months of his life. I know that like all of us, the pandemic was hard on him. I know he was depressed. I know he was in getting psychiatric care that he did not like and was jonesing to write about and expose and, and tell people more about. Yeah. At least that's what, that's what I understand from his Twitter. I never met him in person. We, we had a few DMS and he sent me the book, but, um, but I just, I just feel like, that's probably in my future too. Like more challenges, more, more bad things. I mean, life is so full of death and tragedy. I don't know how I will weather those things. I mean, if everything's fine, maybe I'll be fine, but I don't think that everything is going to be fine. And I just, and so like, that is my one, I love, I love the book. I love the guy. But when I got the end of the book, I was like, Oh my God, I just had this, you know, you get this little feeling of like dread. I, I, I get this all the fucking time. And I want to push it off and be like, no, 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 everything's good. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. But I just like, please let this, <laughs> let this be true. You know? Yeah. What you're talking about there is hugely important for a bunch of different reasons. The one that has struck me over the years, uh, since I've been dealing with, uh, specifically healthcare professionals that have, uh, you know, they get into trouble with, uh, substance use. This, idea that gets taught in you go to a treatment center even when you show up first to the doctor 
it's, oh, don't worry. We're going to get you back. We're going to get your life back. And you're not going to believe it. Once you're sober, everything is going to start working out for you. And they give you this, this story. And I actually, I view it as, as harmful because you need to, I believe that people need to understand that if you are somebody who's been relying on drugs for a long time, and now you're going to try to take life, you know, in the raw without any kind of cushion or alteration or antidepressant defects or effects of the um, whatever substance you're on, you need to understand that it, it's not going to be, you get sober and then everything just works out nicely. In fact, quite the opposite. You're going to have to work pretty hard for quite a while to kind of build up your, your skin again so you can tolerate shit. Because like you said, man, I, I couldn't agree more with your statement about the, when I see somebody who's running around completely, uh, they're not on any kind of medication and no drugs, no drinking and, and they're happy. And I, I'm like, what is like, how are you doing that in this climate? <laughs> I don't work working without a net. Are you good for you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it's, it's very impressive to me because I just, I can't turn off that background angst no matter what I do. I mean, I can sort of dial it down by not paying as much attention, but I can't turn it off, you know? So it's kind of, it becomes a war of attrition, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there were a bunch of situations in the book where I kind of felt that like, please let it work out. And uh, it was actually kind of rough for me because for some reason, I don't know how this worked out, but I, I missed the part that, uh, that David passed away until I had finished the book. So I was, you know, moving forward on the assumption that this guy is doing well and everything is oh fine. God, that's awful. I, it is because I, when I'd got through the last, like I had to actually take my time with the last chapter because I was in a lot of ways, it felt like I was reading about myself. Right. And I mm-hmm. thought that, Oh, well, man, maybe that's possible. And, and then I start talking to Corey and oh, he'd passed away. And I'm like, what, what? That did, yeah. And then that sent me for a spin, man. I had to, I, had to re- I should also say when I was talking about that, I don't know. It hasn't, I don't think it's been public about what happened, you know? So no. like, I, I'm not making any, I'm not making any statements about, about what happened. I, I, and I know that I totally implied that. Uh, so I was just projecting, like I implied that uh, I think I was saying, you know, like everything's good. And that that comeback kid is like a dangerous narrative because what if you get taken out or relapse or something? And I, I don't, you know, we don't, no one's saying that. No one's saying that. And so I just, no. No, and it also it also kind of to me says that it doesn't uh, that it doesn't matter what happened. We had this gifted individual, gifted writer, who doubtless has impacted a, a countless number of people who have read the book, and who who for me he really showed that it is a that it is not a linear thing. Yeah, that it, yeah. that it is a, a a bumpy road and it validated that for me. And I, it caused me to want to own that more that this has mm-hmm. not been because I'm, I'm so um, I'm so wired for approval that I, I tell myself that, you know, everything's hunky dory a lot of the time. And, it, and it's not as easy as I necessarily um, show. And, and David kind of validated that in me, but to think that, regardless of of what happened to him this is the the complexity of life it's part of the beauty of life it's the tragedy of life that that it that 
something could have happened and anything could have happened and anything could have happened to all of us. And, and, you know, for me, when I look at my, you know, journey of, of addiction and, and recovery, I am so immensely privileged. I survived because I had a safe supply. Yeah. I survived uh, because I worked a job that entitled me to uh, a rehab program and paid benefits while I was in rehab and I was able to stay home and pay my mortgage and do all of these things that countless people in our society do not have, have access to. And so when I, when I read the book and, and listen to crackdown and all of these things, I, again, I see the humanity in other people and I look at myself and think, Jesus Christ, do I have it, have it. Okay. Yeah. I I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Well said, like, like owning the bumpiness of the road. And, you know, I, like I went to, I went to 12 step shit and, and, and NA meetings and stuff. And if that works for somebody, that's great. I'm not taking away from that, but like yeah. it did not work for me. And they just, everyone there to learn the same way to tell the story of themselves. In fact, that mm. seemed like one of the skills you picked up there was the ability to, to tell your story as if you're kind of like um, in a religion and you were like, I was a sinner and now I'm saved. And now I'm going on to be the priest who will save you. Mm-hmm. And it was, this story arc was so consistent. I, you know, like when I was thinking about story structure for crackdown, you know, there's a lot of ways you can write or organize a story structure. And I started thinking, man, there's like a 12 step story structure, like a story arc yeah. for, for telling a story. And I think that is uh, uh, like you were saying, like that, that is a little dangerous, you know, cause it can give people a lot of um, a false sense of security. Maybe if, if you don't sort of accept that things are bumpy I also know that it's terrible to tell somebody when they're looking for help. Oh man, this is going to suck. And it's going to go on for years. And years. <laughs> so, like, I don't want to do that either. But I mean, fuck. It's just like, I think, yeah, I think what you said, like owning that bumpiness, that's, that's really, that's really important. I, I'm going to take that. I'm, I really heard what you said there. I'm going to take that from the book too, because, you know, I'm going to think about that in my life. Sometimes I've like denied that I was feeling things and, and packed it all away. And then it explodes out at all over you. Like, you yeah. know, like I always think about it as the, as the uh, Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones, you know, they, uh, they, the, at the end of the first movie, they, the Indiana Jones gets trapped or captured and the Nazis open up the Ark and all these ghosts fly out of the Ark and, and melt people's faces and Indiana Jones is like, close your eyes, close your eyes. I always think about, I'm, I'm spending a lot of, opioids and effort keeping that fucking lid on so the face melting ghosts don't come out but i have to have to also reckon with when it's under critical pressure and about to explode like i have to keep an eye on the install a pressure gauge on your ark of the covenant so you don't get exploded ghosts that's my if, if any advice to the kids <laughs> totally you know of, of, of all the things i highlighted and my uh highlighter pen worked overtime with this book um just three four four words that that really struck me his he's writing with his grandfather writing in the car and his grandfather says to him this is just a blip david mm-hmm. this is a blip and th- that's something that that a lot of very loving supportive kind people have said to me in my life and and i know why they say it and it's it's something that i have said to my to myself with my career being off work as a nurse and being accepting the fact that i am a nurse who got addicted to hydromorphone. 
Um, when I say this is just a blip, there's a part of that that doesn't sort of validate or, or, or the language of that doesn't, doesn't allow me to own the magnitude of the story and not just the, of the, of the opiate, but of all of the shit that got me there in the first place. Right. Right. Like this is just a phase like goth makeup or wearing guy liner. It'll pass. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a goth too. So, too. so totally. I, mean, I, I got albinism, man. I was born goth, but I mean, it's like how they say, or I don't know, you're skating or whatever your subculture, you know? Yeah. And I did wear, I did wear when I was a teenager, did wear eyeliner. So I'm pulling from my own past and on. For sure. Now for me, that, that was a phase, although I don't think you fully rid yourself of, of, your gothness. I certainly haven't. Yeah, that's true. Love me some joy division. Fuck <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. But to say it's a blip, it, it, I think for it's, it's healthier for us to own, own our story for what it is and to hopefully then kind of to release it back to the world or to shed it in whatever way that we can. Um, or hopefully at least shed the shame of the story. Um, and that it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing about saying that it's a blip is you totally, it, you're treating it as if it was a, a, the whole thing was a mistake and that it was just everything about it was stupid and you should, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And now I'm going to forget about it and move on. But we know that that's not true. The strategy that you employed under those circumstances, first of all, you, those circumstances are insane. You know, what, what nurses are facing right now in BC at work is that nobody should be under that kind of pressure all the time with no staff and no support. But to, to say that, that that strategy that you were employing was not rational in the short term is doing mm. disservice to, to reality because we know that that's, that's true. I mean, I was, I, I, I was able to continue working as a uh, pharmacist in a store that was, you know, too busy for any human being with uh, a reasonable sense of what should be. And I was able to continue that on a steady daily dose of, of an opiate because it was effective, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it needs to be understood and discussed and uh, it can't just be glossed over as a, you know, uh, a temporary situation where I lost my way. Um, it, I think it's important for people to really go, go over it, dissect it, look at what happened, why you did everything. I mean, I, it took me two years to really piece together why I ended up where I ended up, you know, still working on it in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that, I think that we we're the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. There's, there's nothing else. Like we are, that's, that's who we are. And this, if the story is false, then you're going to be a mess. And if the story is true, then it's going to include stuff like that. And I think that's what David's book shows us is this yes. is a guy who really embraced all the parts of himself. And I, I know no author is going to tell you every private detail. This is the this is the stuff he's willing to share with us, which is still really deep and honest, right? But it's who the guy is, you know. Or it's it's like, well, what I do on Crackdown is I do the you know, the presentable, well-dressed version of who I am. I don't just have the in pajamas, like first thing in the morning version. I try to have the nicer version, but it's a true, true version. I think that's what David's given us, you know, and he's, he's embracing all the parts of himself. He's not saying um, I'm editing this or that. And um, you know, like good for him. I, I, I think that's, I think that's a brave thing to do. And I also like that, that people like him 
have kind of busted into a hostile society and put their elbows up and cleared a little space for those kind of stories, you know, because, and, and I know it's not the first drug memoir out there. There's, there's enough, there's lots, but it's still, it takes everyone courage to do that. And I, I think it's worth noting that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Garthy, one of the things we've talked about on our, our show before is the, the trait of sensitivity that, that for folks who, who, use drugs. One of the precursors is oftentimes that we take on the pain of other people and that we're sensitive to that. So when I think of that, and then I think of the numbers within our province, number of deaths within our province fr- from overdose. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned in, in, on your crackdown that maybe, you know, 12 people, but Garth, you must know so many more people who know people. Oh, I, I meant in that batch of statistics that was just being announced that day, uh, like of the, of the people who died in 2021, I, I might've known 12 yeah. um, over my life. My God, I've lost, I've lost count. It must be over a hundred. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's people who I know well enough to, to talk to and chat with and, and, you know, call a friend and stuff. Um, I know of a bunch more people that have died and then all of us around crackdown around Vandu, um, we know so many people. I mean, we've lost two people from our editorial board since we started making the podcast. The walls of Vandu are covered with pictures of members who have who have died. Uh, it's yeah, it's 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 deep. There's lots. Yeah, it is, and 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 those are felt. I'm sure fully and fully and completely. And and then you know the fact that we we our province and and other members of our society leave this as a debate or that it's something that could be could be argued against and when to me when we think we think of the impact that that has on the greater community it's just it 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 is so incredibly callous to to mm-hmm. to think of the the insensitivity there yeah we have a columnist in the Vancouver Sun who frequently writes these uh ill-informed, but also really callous and nasty columns, you know, about safe supply or whatever that just, that just show that this is an abstraction for her, you know, that uh, you you can tell she's not feeling it, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, another interesting statistic that would surprise people, I think is again, when you can, you look at the pandemic and you, you look at the, age of the people who are dying the majority of people are are i think 85 is the median something like that and then you look at uh the toxic drug crisis and it's uh, 43 or 44 i think and the majority of that is males um it's not i think it the, the women are sort of catching up it's like 60 40 or something if i last time i checked but the point is is that when you take those people away from a population in what is basically their most, I don't know, the, the, that's the time of your life when you're going to be, you know, free to, uh, you're productive, not just in an economic way, but you're usually, you know, you have kids, you have uh, responsibilities, you're taking care of things. In other words, when you leave, there tends to be a lot of structures that fall down rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like we're rotting from the inside out. And it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of crisis that way. And I I think that would be, you know, for people to understand that point might be helpful as far as 
from an education point of view, you know? I think so. Um, there's a guy who works, uh, who does research sometimes for the province of British Columbia, and his name is uh, Bowden Nosek. And he did, he looked at um, all kinds of data sets to figure out how many people um, are like daily opioid users in British Columbia who have what they call opioid use disorder. And he, I think his most recent figure is 100,000, 100,000 people in British Columbia. And that's, and then you think on top of that, there's people who are wired to other stuff like, rock or meth or whatever. And then on top of that, there's the weekend warriors, like people who aren't using every day, but who just, you know, like get off work and uh, do a line of Coke at the bar or whatever. And uh, those people represent half of the people who die of overdose. So we have like probably hundreds of thousands of people in this relatively small province of 5 million who are in the gun sites. You know what I mean? So I I don't know whether it's like uh, 10%, of the province that are, are potentially like involved in something that's potentially lethal, you know? So like the tinkering around that the, the governments do and the public policy debate is about is really does not recognize the massive scale of, of what's going on, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They appear to be fully ignorant of that. And uh, yeah, I, th- I would say 10% is uh, conservative, um, but certainly 10%. I mean, I, I lost a friend at the beginning, I think it was 2017, the first full year of the crisis as it was announced there. Uh, and he was just, uh, you know, he was not a, uh, a chronic user. He just was on vacation and uh, actually mm-hmm. was here in Kelowna and got some cocaine that was laced. And that was it life over, you know? Yeah. And uh this is not something that has to happen. That's, that's the, the frustrating part of it is it's, it's such a, it's such a, ta- a problem that, that, that could be dealt with. I, that, actually, that's a question for you, Garth, that I thought about a little bit earlier was what you guys did with the, uh, the safe supply there. I thought was, that was really amazing how you guys set that up. Uh, never seen anything like that before. What, uh, has there been any discussion uh, about how that could be implemented on a larger scale without, you know, I mean, obviously you're dodging some serious bullets here, but. Well, for sure that, I mean, the, the first time we did this was 2020, I think maybe in the spring or summer. And so the, the, and the last time was two weeks ago. And so we've maybe done five different distributions, five different events, sometimes, you know, a big barbecue out in the street where we get people to sign up and then get their drugs or sometimes a little smaller, like a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's sort of, it's quite difficult because of course there, there are no legal means to access um, meth and Coke and heroin, even though there's pharmaceutical versions of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the people from, there's a couple of activists in the drug user liberation front that have to go find them. And they do that on the dark web and that's quite difficult. And they're, they're both of those people are risking serious jail time for what they're doing. Uh, and they're taking an incredible risk. And I think they're just fucking heroes. This is, uh, it's just like, well, I, I won't, I wish I could sing their names. I mean, they, their names are known, but I just don't want me to be the person <laughs> that, gets, <laughs> that gets, says it, but like, um, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's pretty incredible, but it is hard to scale because sometimes like the first time we did it, for example, we couldn't find any heroin that was uncontaminated. So we have to, they have to find stuff that they can stand, stand behind. Right. Um, so it's just, it's sometimes not that easy. And then you have to get the money 
um, convert it into like cryptocurrency, buy it online. If the stuff isn't what you think, then you're maybe in a dispute with the seller. Um, you have to test the stuff. It's, it's quite difficult to scale. So uh, we really, this is why uh, the Drug User Liberation Front is, is asking the federal government, uh, give us an exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act so we can obtain this stuff legally and distribute it legally so that we can try it like a heroin co-op or something like that so that we can try it at scale. Um, you know, to go a little further, because it is, while it's illegal, it is pretty difficult uh, to, to scale up, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I I thought for, you know, the, the thought crossed my mind, and I and I think it was, you know, a shower thought type thing, where I was trying to piece together uh, infrastructure that would work, and, and how, uh, you know, you'd have to be moving around all the time. Uh, but at the same time, I, I mean, the, the easiest way would be to manufacture, obviously, this side of the border, and then how do you do that with uh, clandestine, you know, you, you, you got to get pharmaceutical grade stuff out of a clandestine setting. And yes, there is gray labs that uh, that accomplish that. But at the scale that you're talking about, I mean, there'd be helicopters there within nanoseconds type thing. Um, so, yeah, I think getting some, I, I don't know if maybe that's what it ha- it's going to have to take is getting a drug company behind the uh, a movement. Yeah. You know, I'd say definitely, look. And, and 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 we even we even have that. So we even have um, relationships with a drug company that can access diacetyl morphine. There is even diacetyl morphine that they've obtained here in Vancouver. It's just illegal. It's just the fucking paperwork. It stops the many, I think, dozen or sixteen kilograms of diacetyl morphine from getting out from the people who've legally brought it here to get to people because wow. the, the government hasn't allowed this to happen yet. So, I mean, this is, I mean, this is part of the reason why we're calling for the resignations of people because they just, they won't get out of the way. Like exactly. If, if you won't fucking fix it, we'll fix it. We know you're not coming to save us. We're going to save ourselves, but you've got to get out of the way. Yeah. You know, and this is the problem is if the cops are still going to kick in the door at any moment, then we can't scale it. We can't get it legally. We're stuck with the dark web and we're stuck doing fucking a couple of points to like 30 or 40 people at a time as a symbolic action instead of making this shit big to reach you know a hundred thousand dope fiends in bc or whoever else needs it you know like uh and that's that's what it's going to take and they know it governments know it um Mm -hmm. the paperwork is all in front of them that everything they need they just need to sign it you know they just the fact that they aren't every month that goes by and they don't there's another you know couple hundred people in british columbia that leave the planet forever and, and more over Canada and other places. Uh, so yeah, you're no, you're right. The scale is the question. And man, we've been talking about that for, for quite a while. I mean, this has been, honestly, this has been a dream of drug users for a very long time. Let me just, uh, here, I don't know if, I don't know if you can see this back there. There's a poster with a fist with a rig. Can you see that in the back of the wall? That is a poster for a meeting. I made that poster in 1998. 24 years ago wow. in August. And that's what we were talking about at that meeting during the last crisis. And that's where the crackdown logo came from is because I just, I'll never, mm. I, I can't ever forget how long this is taking, ah. you know, and they won't, uh, they won't get out of the way. Imagine if it took that long for the, for the vaccine this year to roll out. Holy shit. Yeah. If it took 20, if it took a generation to get a vaccine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
to please everyone just stay at home in, in your quarantine for the next two decades. Well, we, not, <laughs> not what we invent the vaccine. We have that. But will we get the paperwork? <laughs> right. It's not even that they don't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm glad you can. I'm glad you can laugh, Garth. Oh, you I got mean, it. Yeah, yeah. Gallows yeah. humor. If it's your yeah. neck in the noose, you have the right to gallows humor, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Nathan. Yeah. Well, geez, that was a that uh, time went by really quick. Um, was there anything uh, we tried to send you a message there? I think Garth, uh, we weren't sure if there was uh, maybe some other uh, causes or uh, other things that you wanted to uh, give a shout out to um, plugs, that sort of thing. If you got anything uh, besides your podcast, you want to talk about uh, feel free. No, I mean, I just like, I'm, uh, I'm the host, right. I'm the guy who knows how to make radio a little bit. And, and, uh, I just work with this great group of people uh, who are like excellent musicians and producers. You know, we all make the music for crackdown, but also the people um, on the editorial board who've showed me how to talk about this stuff where I learned my drug war activism from at Vandu. So I'm just, I'm just like the, um, you know, I'm just like the guy who's running the newspaper for the town or something, you know, like that's, that's kind of the job. And um, like, I, I get so much from being a part of that. I'm sure much more than I, I return and it's how I kind of keep going. And that group of people uh, is always looking out for each other, always trying to take care of each other, not just resuscitate overdoses and give people safe supply, but they're realizing and, and, and they all teach each other that all of our struggles are connected. So at Vandu, we have meetings where we talk about um, not just the things that are affecting our lives and like, drugs and policing and stuff, but like um, the rising far right in Canada and what a threat that is to all kinds of people, you know, how, how the anti-vaxxer convoy people are ruining things, you know? So we have a whole politics that understands that we have connections between us and the labor movement, us and movements against colonization, us and black lives matter and to defund the police. Like these are not just like a, a checklist for us, but we understand the inter intersections of all of our struggles. And um, I just, that's what I come out of. That's who taught me. That's how I learned to do my activism. And so I don't, I don't want to ever forget it. You know, when I, I think um, obviously we're, we're talking about one guy, rest in peace, David poses and his book, but um, so much makes, um, makes the fight possible that it's just like, uh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to think about that as we, as we say goodbye, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's uh, connection is the opposite of addiction. Um, and your your peers and the people that uh, you're closest to, no matter what the crisis is, that's uh, those are the people who get you through, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you guys are doing here? This is a great, great conversation. Great podcast. Oh, yeah, thanks. great conversation. Thanks for being a part of it with us, uh, with us, Garth. Cheers. Well, uh, stay safe. Keep six. Listen to Crackdown. Thanks a lot. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Garth. Take care. We'll see everybody later. Take it easy.